0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Steve, nice to meet you, man. Really pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being here.
1: You're welcome, Ethan. It's a a pleasure to be here. I love talking about what we do and how it can impact humanity. So thrilled to have the opportunity. Thank you.
0: You're welcome, man. And I love listening to it. But before we get into it, I always love to get the podcast started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment.
1: So that could be a really long story, but I'll try to shorten it. Um, I've had, I'm Australian originally, hopefully everyone can still tell that. I've lived in the US now for Almost next month, it'll be 34 years. And um, I have a PhD in neuroscience as a background from Australia. Interesting. Came to the US to do a postdoc, University of Iowa. Got on the sort of the research faculty there, had some money from the NIH. Was All things were going down that path. And it was really not as satisfying to me. You know, when you do a PhD, you end up with One of two benefits, the way I tell people, you either become more and more knowledgeable and and an expert in your chosen field, and those fields can be pretty narrow, or you can use it as a training ground to ask really different questions. It teaches you to think differently about data and the interpretation of it. And after six years there, I was recruited to come to Procter & Gamble. Frankly, a company I didn't know a whole lot about at that stage, and I went home and looked in my cupboards, and most of the products I had were PNG ones.
0: And where is home exactly? Where in Australia?
1: Uh, for me, it's Adelaide, South Australia. Got it. That'll come back up in our conversation later, as it, as it as it becomes um, interesting. But so I ended up being recruited by Procter and Gamble. So pain research, chronic pain research, was my chosen field of study. And Procter & Gamble had a pain research program, and they had just switched a leave from RX to OTC back then that had a pipeline of things, and they wanted someone to come in and help them shape it all. That was me. Now, about two years into that, they sold the business and said, well, what do you want to do? And I stayed and spent the next six or seven years in the healthcare organization where I was doing a variety of things, mostly externally, and then spent another seven years, seven or eight years in the company's corporate side, dealing with how to big companies innovate with small companies. How do you think about investments? I spent about a year and a half out in San Francisco Bay area, which luckily for me is when I met the American woman who's now my wife. So that was uh, almost 10 years ago now. And, Got very involved in the company's sustainability benefits. This is going back probably uh, a dozen or so years, perhaps more now. So how do companies think about water, waste, energy, and materials and its use? And that really got me started on this path, and I took an early retirement, partly because my 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 wife then was from the Bay Area. She was a professor still is a professor in economics, and had been asked to come back to uh, San Jose State University, where she's from. And we moved, and I was able to get access to an early retirement, lifetime healthcare coverage, incredibly well, thank you, P&G. And it gave me an opportunity to step back and say, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? What's important to me? Where is my passion And so I spent five or six years working with Fortune 100 companies, folks who knew me would come and we would talk about, you know, ESG or sustainability or the like in their corporation or disruptive innovation. And I didn't find that particularly fulfilling. Financially, it was fine. but And and about three years ago, almost exactly three years ago, I started this company, CH4 Global. And it's been, you know, it's the thing I've been looking for. How do you make an impact at, at global scale on a major problem that we have, climate change um, or the climate crisis, I think is now a better word to use. And how do you use skills that you've developed over the last 30 years to be able to do that? And that's the reason I spent a longer time on the intro, Ethan, is that's really the important piece here. We I, you know, someone could have come up with this great idea and many have about what you would do, but it's, how do you solve it? How do you do it? How do you build the capability? How do you understand all of the key things? And that academic PhD training, that corporate cutting your teeth with Procter and Gamble with, you know, $350 billion company has been incredibly helpful at being able to get to where we are today as a company. So yeah, long intro, sorry.
0: No, it's a great, it's great. I would say it's about average uh, from, you know, it's a tough question. How, who are you? How'd you get to be doing what you're doing? Uh, I'd love to ask it though. Cause you get the the perspective. I think uh, a lot of it is about finding what you're good. Everyone, everyone, at least most of the people I talk to on this show are interested in creating a positive impact in some way, shape or form. Obviously, when you talk about the climate crisis, it's the biggest thing that people are focusing on lately because it's obviously existential threat looming every single day. But it is about, you know, for you in your example, thinking back over 30 years on what am I good at and how can I effectively be a, a huge piece in solving this giant puzzle, as I'll put it, um, in my case, it's looking back over six years and being <laughs> like, "Hmm, what's my personality?" And I came to the the conclusion that sales would be the best thing for me to do. But um, so let's let's talk about CH4 Global. Like, what is it, and how did it come about? And is is am I am I correct to say this is the first venture that you've started your own? As, as I understand it, you were like an angel investor in several other projects as well, right?
1: Yeah. So. Um, there have been four other companies that I've started doing various things, often with other people, but not really leading it as the CEO and founder in here. So this is the one where I spend all of my time, like literally and truly all of my time. I Um, I could be out playing golf and relaxing and doing things. I choose to do this because I think that as a company, we can make a difference um, and will make a difference. And so it's worth putting the time into it. It's personally very rewarding. Yeah. So how did we come about? Well, back in that time when I was those five or six years, when I was working with a variety of Fortune 100s, I also worked with a couple of governments. And one of the governments was the Australian government. And the national research organization there is called CSIRO. They've been around for more than 100 years have developed some incredibly impactful innovations, both within the Australian ecosystem, but also globally. People don't know much about it, but they have. And they'd asked me to come in and understand what were some of the most disruptive, top 10, actually, most disruptive opportunities in their entire portfolio. So I spent a very intensive three weeks doing that work quite some years ago now and came up with a list and on it was an internal project then called Future Feed. And Future Feed was being run by by two folks, Michael Battaglia, um, whose name I'll bring back up later on, and Rob Kinley, Dr. Rob Kinley, a Canadian researcher, actually, who was working at CSIRO. And they had developed all of the fundamental understanding behind how does this species of red seaweed, asparagopsis, have this incredible benefit. It was all secretive. Was none of it had been published at that stage. And so I had under NDA the opportunity to see that. And I said, using all of my integrated background, I said, man, not only is that disruptive, using PNG experience to do that, not only does it work using my science background to look at the data that had been generated, and it was safe using, again, my healthcare background and experience to say, this is disruptive. But you know what? Nobody, this is back in 2016 and 2017, not that long ago, Ethan, but nobody cared about methane. CO2, you know, climate change and the oil and gas industry, the fossil fuel industry was the only thing that was talked about by people. And frankly, it's really only in the last three or four months leading up to COP26 that that methane has even started to be part of the conversation. But I knew the opportunity was there. I also lived in California for 10 years until just recently when we moved to Las Vegas. And California, about the same time as I knew this data, had passed State Bill 1383 that mandated a minimum 40% reduction in methane output from cattle by, and to be put in place by law by 2030, but 2024 was the looming date. And there's no way to do that. There's, there's nothing you can do. You can't combine things to get to 40%. So I knew there was a market and there's 1.8 million dairy cows just in California alone. So here I am sitting and I know of a technology that works, is safe, and I got a market. And the trigger for it, as I was in New Zealand, almost exactly three years ago this month, Uh, giving a a keynote talk on the future of electricity and transportation. And I went to the lunch session afterwards with a New Zealand entrepreneur friend of mine. And we listened to a variety, five politicians on the dais, two from New Zealand and three from Pacific Islands. And a prime minister, a head of state, was sharing photographs of building dam walls around his island and also about To prevent rising sea, and also about showing pictures of people being relocated permanently to Fiji. And he asked what was intended to be a rhetorical question What would you all do if you had a year left? And at that point, I said, I know the market, I know it's safe, I know it's a product that's effective. We need to grow Asparagopsis at massive scale. So the company was born that day. I turned to my my uh, friend next to me that now co-founder of the company and he agreed and we brought in three other folks that he knew that I also knew, but he knew much, much more, um, you know, deeply. And we formed the company in December of 2018 as a New Zealand entity. And as we've grown and New Zealand, because it's one of the native homes of the species. Correct. And I was in New Zealand and four of my co-founders were New Zealanders and in April of 2020, we turned it into a, a US headquartered C Delaware corporation with wholly owned subsidiaries in New Zealand and Australia. Okay. And that's how we're now building the model. So headquarters right. is US where we are. So
0: Cool. Well, thanks for sharing. Let, let's back it up a little bit for someone who's doesn't even know what methane is, isn't aware. Let's just like cover the very basics. So when yep. California is talking about a 40% reduction in methane emissions, was that directly contributed to, to uh like livestock or just pre- reduction in methane in general?
1: Um, It was, it was more in general, but okay. livestock is one of the bigger components within there, within California.
0: So let's, okay. um Yeah. So CH4 Global is the name of your company. CH4 is the what is it called? The, the sign the chem- for-
1: The chemical symbol,
0: yeah. Of methane. So um, h- how does methane emissions compare to CO2 emissions? And what does that have to do with livestock? And what does asparagopsis have to do with any of that
1: stuff? Oh, well, it's three good questions in there. So you, I'll have to remind you to tell me if numbers two and three. So let's talk about methane
0: yeah.
1: um, as the chemical. So on the planet today, we we recognize that global warming is happening well many of us do increasing frequency of all of the weather events that are going on the the compromised lifestyles of many of the people in what's now called the global south it generally means those below south of the equator who are impacted by emissions that are generated generally by people in the global north it's not quite 100% that way but that's A terminology that's often being used. And as we do that, it's really for the most part been attributed for many, many years, for 50 years to carbon dioxide. And the major anthropogenic, that means that which we produce um, or have produced or as a result of us being produced uh, of CO2 is the fossil fuel usage. And there's, there's tons of data. I won't go into any of it. And I think people are at least familiar with it. So CO2 has been the culprit, um, claimed culprit, and fossil fuel industry has been the ones that are under the gun. And all of that is true. There's no, there's no, there's no issue with that. But what's happened as we have evolved, we've begun to understand. In fact, you'll read articles saying we were surprised that and this is a a frequent occurrence, and one of the we were surprised at, that methane is also a significant contributor. Now, the question is how impactful, how much more of a contributor? And there's again, two ways to answer that. I'll give you today's answer because today's is the only one that matters. We have set last week at COP26, We've set, the world has agreed to set 2030 goals. It was actually set at COP21 in Paris. What's the 2030 emissions we need as a planet? We now know that's 45% reductions in greenhouse gas concentrations compared to to 2020. That's an enormous amount when we're projected to actually increase 7%. How the hell are we going to do that? This is the problem. And through that the recognition that something like methane over a 20 year period over the next 20 years Mm -hmm. is 86 times more impactful than carbon dioxide and so while there's less of it around it's it's 86 times more impactful in fact over a 10 year period it's 99 times more impactful
0: what do you mean by impactful as in having a warming effect on the climate correct
1: correct in terms of its physics of how it actually produces a warming effect so it's you know it's almost a hundred times more impactful and so if you produced a hundred times less it's going to have the same impact this is the key thing and so then you ask yourself a question well where does methane on the planet today come from that we cause to be produced and there's two big buckets there's there's dozens of smaller things that produce it but Bucket number one that people always think about is the oil and gas industry because natural gas, that's methane. So if you have a pipeline that's putting natural gas into your house to heat it in the winter and there's a leak in there, that's natural gas that's leaked into the atmosphere that contributes to climate change that we produce, right? So, and in fact, when Biden earlier in the year, said we're going to impact methane in the U.S., it was really focused on the oil and gas industry. Because it's an easy one for people to think about, well, if I go fix the pipelines, I can reduce the leakage. These are all good things to do. In fact, they make good business sense. But what people will be surprised to learn is that the agriculture industry globally is far larger than oil and gas.
0: When it comes to in methane
1: fact, production. in methane production. Within agriculture, cows or actually more broadly that the technical term and I'll explain it is called enteric fermentation. Um, enteric fermentation is the largest source it is bigger than oil and gas and I'm going to repeat that just in case we have some policymakers that listen in. <laughs> enteric fermentation is larger has a larger impact than does Methane emissions from the oil and gas industry. So, what's enteric fermentation? That gets us to what asparagopsis does. So, cows, as an example, but we also include in this cows, sheep, goats, camels, deer, they all have four stomachs compared to our one. And the first stomach is called the rumen. And part of the rumen's job is to break down complex carbohydrates, grasses, and grains that typically they would eat, that we can't eat. We can't break them down. We don't have the machinery inside of our digestive tract to be able to do that. So they pass through generally undigested. In a cow, they're broken down, and they're broken down because they have a series of bacteria in that first part of the rumen called methanogenic. Methanogenic meaning they break down um, complex carbohydrates and methano, Methane, genic means produce. So they produce methane. That's what the bacteria do. And so as they break it down, so the calories are coming in from the cow that they're eating. These bacteria helping to break it down to the energy sources that the cow needs to be able to produce milk and beef. And that energy source is not glucose like it is in us. It's called fatty acids that it utilizes for that. But a byproduct of those bacteria helping to break down those calories is they produce about 15% of the calories that a cow eats is burped out as methane. You'll often see pictures of cows and it looks like they're farting it out, right? That's, that's the comical way to represent it. But the true answer is that 95% of the methane that a cow produces is burped. Enteric, stomach, fermentation i.e. The, 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 you're fermenting the grasses and the grains to break it down. So that's where the words enteric fermentation simply mean the digestive process in a ruminant, a four-stomached four, um, four animal of which the cow is the largest um, producer. So cows, and there's 1.5 billion cows on the planet. So there's a lot again, of methane. So that's 100, on average, it's, it's about 150 million tonnes of methane at 86 times more impactful. That's, that's 12.9 billion or 12.9 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalents, try to normalise them. For hmm. reference, that is larger than the entire greenhouse gas emissions of the country of China. It is larger Than the entire greenhouse gas emissions from any industry, from the US, plus the EU27, plus India, the numbers two, three and four largest greenhouse gas emitters on the planet, larger than those three put together. That is the magnitude of the problem, but it's also the magnitude of the opportunity to do something about. So asparagopsis, what is it? You'd have to, you know, step back and ask the question to say, well, if we have this big problem, are there things we can do about it? And there have been people working on different grass breeding programs to lower methane and different grains, Um, even people working on cow breeding programs to have differences in bacteria. People are giving probiotics to try to modify the bacterial milieu.
0: People are advocating eating less meat as well.
1: (laughs) That's, that's certainly one of them. Uh, there are companies developing new chemical entities, devices that cows will wear, masks, literally, I mean, literally masks now yeah. um, that are out there. And all of these things all have some measurable impact, generally not particularly much, somewhere between 10%, maybe 30% on a good day. That's better than nothing. It helps you get to the 30% goal, but now I've got to get to all the 1.5 billion cows in the next 10 years. Asparagopsis was really uncovered by this Canadian that I mentioned before, Dr. Rob Kinley, and his life's work has really been focused on uncovering this. And all the work that CSIRO did initially is really at uncovering how old does asparagopsis, what is unique about it today that enables that benefit? And it's, Pretty simple. It turns out that all seaweeds on the planet, all 10,000 species of seaweeds, they all produce a series of chemicals of which bromiform is an example of one of them. And I'll use the word bromoform when I mean the 95 other chemicals as well, because you don't want me listing them all. And I won't be able to pronounce them all. So bromoform is this material that seems to have this benefit in cows. And all seaweeds produce bromoform. every single one of them on the planet. It's part of their natural metabolic cycle. But this species has developed over time, over millennia, the ability to store it in little vesicles inside the plant called gland cells and concentrate it. And the reason it's done it, it's its defense mechanism in the water. So when a sea creature comes up to nibble on this, it's it's a gorgeous seaweed. It floats and looks like a sort of a red, pinkish, sometimes purplish floating Christmas tree because it likes to live in water that moves. And it's just it's just gorgeous to see it. Take it out of the water and it all collapses. There's very little three-dimensional rigidity to the structure. But when it's doing this, it looks really attractive to a sea creature that likes to eat seaweed. Comes up to nibble on it and says, yeah, I don't like that. That's why it's concentrated it. So it's been its its natural defense mechanism. So that's why it has it. Now, why haven't other seaweeds developed the same same mechanism? Nobody knows. There are Mm. research groups around the world who have been looking for other species of seaweeds that does the same thing. None have been found yet. and At least 300 have been looked at. It's likely that some will, but today we have asparagopsis. And we know that it is these combinations of these 95 chemicals in there it's not just bromoform in fact just bromoform only gives you about a third of the benefit so it's a combination like most natural materials it's a combinatorial effect the natural product actually provides us and we're not going looking for it we know we have the whole plant so when you can provide it to an animal a cow in this stage about so a cow eats maybe 20 pounds, I'll I'll convert it, 10 kilos, 20, 22 pounds. The number varies. That's a fair bit of food a day. And you take four tablespoons and sprinkle it into that over the course of the whole day. That's all it takes, right? It's like putting salt or sugar on top of your meal. It's 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 an added supplement. So it's about less than one half of 1% of the total dietary intake from a cow effectively eliminates methane production it not only eliminates methane production, but it increases efficiency of that animal. Because if you remember back to when I shared and said about 15% of those calories are burped out as methane, well, if they're no longer burped out as methane, they stay in the cow as energy and are absorbed by the cow. So the cow is more efficient. Physiologically, you can describe how it works. And the data that's being generated now starts to support that. And the, the blockage, it's very simple, it's not magic. it's simply an enzymatic inhibition or in- inhibition of an enzyme that's normally converting those precursors into methane that's burnt out. So everyone understands it from a biochemical standpoint. There's no magic in it it's it's fundamental science.
0: Yeah, well, this is truly groundbreaking stuff, which is why i'm I'm really delighted to have you on the show i I think uh, the opportunity is immense it's 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 quite it's quite amazing um the thing is it is it only grows in certain places right it has to be grown in its natural habitat
1: also an extraordinarily important question so in a in a world today of of a 30 percent methane pledge that's going to be extraordinarily difficult to attain by 2030 that now 105 countries have signed up for by the way Mm. including the u.s um How do we get there when we know this has this profound benefit? Now, there are two species, a cold water one that by its name likes to grow in colder waters. It is native only to the southern part of Australia and New Zealand. Mm. It exists off of Chilean fjords, in the North Sea, in the Mediterranean, the southern tip of Africa, west coast of Ireland, in all of those locations even every single one it is deemed an invasive species it's also an aggressive one so you don't want to try to grow a species at large scale in the ocean um, you are creating an ecological potential issue fair point so you can't grow it in many the cold water one in the ocean you can't grow it in any places other than australia or new zealand the warm water one is generally endemic, found throughout most of the Pacific and most of the Indian Ocean, Mm. including Australia. And so Australia, in fact, is unique that it's, I believe, the only place in the world where both species exist. And in the southern part of Australia, South Australia, by a state where we have one of our operational areas, it's the only place in the world where both actually grow in the same you know, square yard on the ocean floor due to some unique geography. So growing it in water is really important, but you also need to say not just where is it? What are the conditions that might have to be met that allow us to be able to grow it? And I've I've come up with five criteria that would be relevant for us as a as a as a company that we believe is both ecologically Um, and ethically responsible. One, you should only grow it in the ocean where it's native, of course. Two, you shouldn't grow it where it interferes with fishing industries. Three, you shouldn't grow it in a region where it interferes with other existing businesses that are utilized in that region. Four, you shouldn't grow it in an area where it interferes with tourism. And five, where it interferes with shipping or trade routes now for the us there's only one location in the us where the native species can be found the warm water version and that's hawaii hmm. so now you go through those criteria well if i grow it at large scale given hawaii is sort of on a reef and i don't have a lot of space for it it's going to interfere with tourism it's going to interfere with recreational fishing it's going to interfere with other businesses and transportation so it becomes problematic to grow it anywhere in the US. Again, there is uh, some evidence that it's been able to found on Southern California. Uh, again, you have limitations on your ability to do it. There are far more viable places around the world. Now, you can also grow it on land, in tanks, in closed tanks and systems. Hmm. Trickier to do, more expensive because... Now I've got to acquire a tank where I had an ocean that was cost me. I've got to give it the nutrients that it needs, whereas they were provided free. By the way, it's, um, <laughs> me, its nutrients are pretty simple. Sunlight, because um, it's a photosynthetic plant. Two, carbon, which comes from dissolved carbon dioxide in the ocean, which is contributing to ocean acidification. So if we take out the carbon in the water, we reduce ocean acidification. And then third from nitrogen and sometimes phosphorus, which is a problem for us as humanity because the more we grow products on land in agriculture, we have that nitrogen and phosphorus that washes off that land into ocean causing aquatic dead zones. And the seaweed takes all that up too. So the seaweed has a whole bunch of other benefits. But when you grow it in tanks, you need to provide all of those. Again, an added cost. And then you've got to put it on land. And now you're competing for that land with other agricultural uses, with human uses for that. So it has other costs to do with it. Doesn't mean you can't do it. Um, it's likely more efficient at producing material. But we just have to be careful because 15 years ago, the world went through this exact same thing with microalgae. Mm. And microalgae it were going to be the savior and we're going to produce all of the biofuels to allow us to continue to drive combustion engines today. Well, after a couple of hundred billion dollars of venture and other capital investments into that industry, not one made it out the other end. And it was all, well, I can grow microalgae that exists throughout the oceans. I can grow them all in contained systems in here. And for a variety of technical reasons, it just didn't pan out that way. So we just have to be aware that growing in closed systems in tanks certainly is an attractive proposition, but I don't think we yet know that it's feasible to do at any level of scale.
0: What does the uh, cattle industry think about feeding this to their uh, their animals? Are there any safety issues that have come up in these studies?
1: So I think... There are, for the most part, no safety issues that have come up for this in the studies. People have looked in, in milk, in beef, in various organs and tissues, in urine and feces uh, for any evidence of any safety issue whatsoever. And for the most part, uh, perhaps with one exception, there's never been any issue found whatsoever. So the bulk of all of the data, and there are reasons why that one study. Uh, perhaps um, had some issues with its design. So for the most part, there doesn't appear to be any safety issues and data that continues to be generated by the various companies looking to do this would continue to support that. I think the the question for farmers is maybe a twofold. Like any industry, there's early adopters. There's those 10 to 15% who say, look, I wanna do this. And we have a long list of those farmers who we're seeking to wanna work with. There are some corporations who are now starting to lean forward, especially if they're heavily dependent upon beef or or milk to lower their own carbon footprints associated with their own corporate goals. But farmers are generally, and I say this nicely for the farmers that are listening, a bit of a curmudgeonly group. They don't really like to necessarily, as a larger entity, as, as a generalization, aren't necessarily the the most quick to adopt new technologies and new approaches, right? It's worked for me this way for decades. It's going to keep working for me. And so I think there's the issue there. And there are two areas that importantly must be addressed in this and any other industry. How do you make it easy for farmers, right? So if my farming practice and I do all of these things in my normal day, how do I incorporate this into that regimen? The first time you have to have a farmer or, or frankly, any of us as consumers do a habit change to have a benefit. Now you've raised a big barrier. So we're trying to work on how we have product forms that fit within the farmer's practices that don't require a habit change to in fact, be able to address that. And then the second one is price or cost. It's always the question I get, how much is it going to cost me? Totally. And and I tell people, I don't think that's the right way to ask the question. The question is, what is the value to the farmer? And the farmer can derive by using this product, not our product, but this product, meaning asparagopsis, ours, of course, importantly within there, is there's four different areas that the farmer will derive economic value.
0: That's one the is there's a,
1: yeah, there's a reduction in carbon. And it's measurable. It's methane, but methane converted to carbon on a carbon tax or carbon pricing has a certain inherent value. And the farmer's made that money. Now, the problem is the farmer can't just go down to the bank and say, hey, here's my methane credits, give me some money. It doesn't work that way. And there are emissions trading schemes that are being set up in different parts of the world. Again, the farmer's Ability to transact in that certainly any time in the near future is difficult. So we work with the farmer to acquire a reasonable number of those credits back. They get paid to do it on day one. Two, there's this increase in efficiency of the animals. So they either produce more beef and milk or they can produce the same amount with less feed. In either case, it's a, it's a financial win for the farmer,
0: and that's just with half a percent of their food.
1: <laughs> yep, and and it's not like if you give it twice as much, you get a benefit. In fact, you don't want to give ask it that more. As well. There's no need, yeah. no reason. You already get ninety percent reduction. You don't need to give more. More that's just completely wasted.
0: But what is, what benefit would they get in like the efficiency of the animal or the muscle tissue? If, tend
1: to, so the, the science is still being published on that. Um, in a beef feed lot. The trial that was published last year suggested that animals got to live weight, the weight at which they're then taken off to, for, for processing for us generally as consumption, in half the time. That's an incredible benefit mm-hmm. for, for a whole variety of reasons. So that study is actually being repeated with a much larger number of cattle. There's a study... <laughs> me, there's a study in New Zealand going on now in dairy cattle to start to look at that. So the science is evolving to support the physiology. But if you just use the physiology number, I said 15% more efficient. There's a monetary value you can assign to that to the farmer. Mm -hmm. And and the third one is many cattle are given supplements uh, in their time. And the supplements are meant to support various different benefits, but supplements that are given that are focused on the vitamin and mineral component, the seaweed is just jam-packed with them. It's like its own little super vitamin pill. And so for cattle who are being provided vitamins and minerals, that could actually be dramatically reduced. But the most important piece in all of this and the easiest for people to sort of understand is now I've got a low-carbon beef and I've got a low-carbon milk they're inherently more valuable in the market. Just go down, so when I was living in California, if I went down to the local store and I bought a gallon of milk, and then I looked next to it and I said, let me buy a gallon of organic milk. It was two X, two times the price for organic milk. Well, if I wanted a gallon of soy or almonds or coconut milk or any of the nuts or plant-based milks, they're three X. Three times the price consumers are paying at retail. These are multi-billion dollar industries in California alone. So consumers are demanding products that have a lower carbon footprint. So we already know there's demand. Some of the largest corporations on the planet that deal in this industry are involved, deal in the industry of milk and beef are involved with us or other people in this part of the sector. We know there's incredible demand from consumers, especially those your age, Ethan and younger, for wanting to build the planet to be a better place than perhaps my generation and others have made it. Sure. And some of the things we can do is purchase things that are better for the planet in that way. And so a milk or a beef that is low carbon has a couple of benefits not only is it lower carbon, but now you have a choice. You can sit there and think, well, do I want to buy that vegan burger or do I want the beef burger? Well, I perhaps I liked beef, and, but now it's perhaps in the similar carbon range of reduced carbon of low carbon. Now That's I have a choice. Idea. Same thing on the milk side of the standpoint in here. And so again, the science will continue to evolve and we'll have those, we'll have those, those data to help consumers make a better choice. So this, this, this brings value and impact to consumers in many different ways, especially those that are prepared to pay for it. So when you look at all those benefits for the farmer, carbon, feed efficiency, um, supplements, and increased price at farm gate for a low carbon beef, when you add them all up, they actually more than pay for the cost of the product. So the farmer sure. puts money in their pocket and that's one of our key premises as a company. In fact, we have three. One, to reduce um, climate change or impact climate change at scale with urgency. Number one, that's why we exist. But number two is we want to put money in farmers' pockets. It should be a financial benefit for them to do this. Three, another key tenant for ours, is to be able to work with indigenous first nations groups anywhere in the world where we can. We're doing that in Australia and in New Zealand and we will do that in other regions. Um, It's it's simply the right thing to do. These are guardians of the land and the sea who in Australian standpoint have lived continuously on that land for somewhere between 50 and 65,000 years. it's time for them to be able to uh, have access to opportunities that can build both on their knowledge and their benefits. So these are key important tenants for us as a company as we move through, we think, it, it, we think it's the right ethical thing to be able to do so.
0: I agree. Um, I love it. I think we've covered the uh, necessity pretty clearly. And the benefits are, are even bigger than the necessity, it would appear. Um, so at the end here, I just I would like to chat about what exactly your company is doing on like a day to day or systematic level to, to push this, this product out. As I understand it, it's currently only approved for use in Australia right now. Is that right?
1: So existing legislations on the use of feed supplements allow asparagopsis to be able to be sold, actually in Australia and in New Zealand. Okay, great. So so yes, commercial product that could be done, that could be sold. But I think it's, it's take your question on what are we doing?
0: We need a global, um, CH4 global.
1: Correct. And the way we think about this, Ethan, is... Um, it's a stepwise. So, we just raised some uh, venture investment money. Thank you to DCVC and DCVC Bio, and, and both uh, incredible venture companies in California who believed in us enough to invest. So, we raised a $13 million investment round. And that money allows us to now take all the knowledge we've developed for all of the component pieces. How do you grow a seaweed, a hatchery, produce the little seedlings, the little babies? How do you grow them on the ocean or in tanks? How do you harvest them? How do you process them? How do you formulate them? All of these series of things you need to be able to do uh, of which we've been working on. The focus now for us is the word I use is optimize. How do we optimize the processing? How do we optimize building of a hatchery? Doesn't mean perfect to be really clear. How do we optimize it so that we have an efficiency of production that allows us to be reliable, consistent, quality assured level of product that's gonna go into market. And that's really what we're doing over the next 12 months at an operational facility we have in Australia, in Adelaide, turns out where I was born. But the reason that it's there is that's where the robust native species are in Australia for us. They exist in a few other places, but there are a variety of reasons why it's better there. Two, in our facility in New Zealand. And we have several locations within New Zealand. Great. So it's optimizing each of those component pieces and the flow of material through, and it's optimizing our understanding of biomass growth. How much does the seaweed grow in the ocean and in tanks? And how much of these variety of these volatile, natural materials that produce the effect in cattle How do we increase the amount of those that are within the seaweed? So all of that work is going on for the next 12 months. We'll then build uh, what we believe will be the world's first scaled commercial scale uh, facility in Australia initially. We'll validate all of the financial assumptions that we've built into it. We'll show the world that this frankly just makes money as well as provides dramatic impact on the oceans, reduced ocean acidification, reduced issues with nitrogen coming off of the land that produces dramatic impact in the atmosphere in terms of methane reduction and therefore climate change impact and produces dramatic effects on land by increasing productivity of cattle and making them now something viable. So we don't have to necessarily stop eating beef. We can eat low carbon beef. Um, So... All of that work is going on in the next 12 months, building the world's first facility then in, in the uh, late part of 2022, operational in 2023. And then we'll be building a footprint that allows us to know how to, how to build an operational plant, an operational facility that we will then build on all six continents around the world in 2024 onwards. And we're working now with strategic partners in each of those ones for the production. And we're working with strategic partners that cut across what I call someone involved in the supply chain, the use of the materials across the globe. So all of that work is going on now in preparation for building facilities in each of those regions, in preparation for being able to have global supplied product. That's what we're doing.
0: Thank you for doing it, man. I'm um, I'm I'm so behind everything you're doing. I think it's awesome, and I really I really really want to see this company succeed. If I had any seed funding, I would be sending it all your way, uh, Steve. It's really and thank you for coming on the show. It's really spectacular um, thing that I don't think any like most people aren't aware of this at all, and I think it's a huge opportunity. And one thing I do want to talk about, which which I, I we didn't get to cover before, is um, there's this idea that. The impacts we have today, or the um, inputs we put in today, we're not going to see the results of for 20, 30 years. CO2 is stays in the atmosphere for decades. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about the difference in the, I don't know what it's called, but how long methane stays in the atmosphere and warms the planet versus CO2 and how this can really significantly buy us time when it comes to emission reductions, methane in it, particular.
1: It, yep. Its lifetime in the atmosphere is 12.4 years. Right. So if you can, and people people have used all sorts of strange arguments, right? When they try to defend their own turf, Ethan, and I won't go too much into this, but you've had people say, oh, it's part of the natural methane cycle. Therefore, if we don't increase the number of cows, we won't contribute to the problem. Well, frankly, that's just BS. You're contributing to the problem by the cows putting methane in and those cows exist at the numbers they exist to feed us. That's truth and reality. So if we didn't put the methane in, we have two choices. Get rid of all the cows. That makes no economic sense. The, the industries that would be decimated by that. Eventually, should we be eating less beef over time? That's a sort of a bit of an ethical argument, but. I don't want, we don't need to get into that, but the other way to do it is how do I stop methane going in by by, by an approach such as what we're developing? Well, if I could stop that going into the atmosphere, I have 12.9 gigatons carbon dioxide equivalents every year that is not going into the atmosphere. That impact, you know, is, is just enormous. So if I can do it, we actually have the opportunity to reduce global warming in a way where it potentially is a slight cooling effect. And again, the scientists in in the IPCC and the United Nations are doing all those calculations, trying to understand what that impact would be. But what it effectively does at a practical level, if we can get this, an industry can get this, to serve 1.5 billion cows on the planet in the next eight years through 2030, it's bought the world another one to two decades to get CO2 and fossil fuels transitioned. And again, advocates who say, we need to shut all the fossil fuels off tomorrow, I think haven't thought through the logic of that. Our lives depend on it for everything we do. A transition away is the practical sense. And I see very little discussion on Well, should we have a transition plan over 10 years? What would that look like? What will we replace things with? How do we do that? This is not a practical discussion, sadly, that is happening. It's not happening. And it really needs to happen. This buys the world another one and perhaps two decades to get that transition right so that we can have the least impact on global warming so that, you know, people's children today and their children yet to be born have a future world that is not going to be an ecological disaster, which is the path we're headed on today.
0: Absolutely. Um, And then the light, just um, comparing the lifetime of carbon or CO2 in the atmosphere is like 30, 40 thousands of years. So this really, this is like a, like a, like a super Mario star, like, like give us a little boost. So that's really important. Um, Do you think it's possible for the private sector to lead on climate action and fix these problems? Or do you think it's essential for governments to create mandates, for example, like California did saying that you need to reduce uh, emissions by 40% or can we rely on stuff like I suppose you'd need legislation to create a a voluntary carbon market. But I, I, I just draw a distinction between coercive policies and like reasonable laws, I suppose. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the debate that happened for the last couple of weeks in Scotland. I of course. Um, I, I truly believe, and my wife is an economist, so we have this partly this discussion now, I, I truly believe that the private sector will be not only the source of opportunities, but certainly the deployment and the ability for that. So I think the government's role in this um, is not to try to set the strategies. I think we've systematically proven that governments are not very good at that uh, year in, year out. What the governments can do is try to appreciate where can the biggest impact come over the time frame. in this case, the next 10 years for the benefit of the citizens in that region. That's really what their goal is. How do I keep improving the lives health and well being of the citizens, the constituent citizens in a region. And so when we think about this, where the world has declared methane, so the executive director of the United Nations, Inger Anderson said, methane is the single largest lever for climate change impact in the next 25 years. Now, that is an incredible statement. It's also true. And so now we think about How do we impact methane? Well, the single largest source is from ruminants, cows, burping. We have a safe, effective technology platform that eliminates 90% of that, that can improve the world's oceans, can improve the atmosphere and the land conditions, can produce much more efficient cows to produce more protein for the humans on the planet where we have a protein shortage. These are, it's not, I'm not suggesting it's a silver bullet. What it does is buys us time for a transition. And we can implement this. So government's role in this is to sit back much like a COVID vaccine and say, well, we would normally take five years to approve any new vaccine drug, but the world did this in 12 months. Not only did we approve several new vaccines in 12 months, they were produced and distributed. Why? Because the government said, whoa, there's an urgency on this. People are dying. This is not a good thing. We need to impact this. So the machinery within the regulatory approval mechanisms, stepped up their pace and did work at a pace that they might not ordinarily do. It is the climate crisis. (laughs) We are in a crisis. So it's time for governments to start to do the same thing we did in a vaccine scenario in terms of methane and perhaps carbon dioxide legislation that facilitates the ability for opportunities to get into market, to have bigger impacts that can be be developed by industry. So things that regulate um, the ability to use it, things that regulate the approval of it, need to have a higher level of attention paid to them. That's the trick in the government's role. Now, I personally believe there should actually be a carbon tax. I'm one of the advocates for it. I are. think it'll do a couple of things. It'll it'll facilitate a transition away from fossil fuels. But that's only if that carbon tax money is put into new opportunities to develop for the future. Government's role. How do we manage the carbon taxes that will come in and make sure that they're put into the right things? That's a bit of a, a gray area that no one's talked about. But I think the carbon tax um, is one way that governments can facilitate the transitions that we need in all of the sectors that we need agriculture and oil and gas.
0: Yep. I think that's absolutely essential. It's a very long uh, conversation that I brought up at the end here, but I appreciate you giving your perspective. That's what I wanted to hear. A final piece of advice for business minded people who are passionate about this issue.
1: Um, The (laughs) again, that could be a long answer. (laughs) I think, you know, folks In particular, I I get asked this question in a slightly different way, Ethan, you know, what do folks in their 20s who are looking to go down an entrepreneurial path do? And my advice to them is twofold. I give lots, but there are two big buckets I think that are important. Do what you're passionate about. Too many people do what they think is expected of them by their families by society and they end up doing something that perhaps they're less enamored with this less passionate about it brings home money and it lets them live a lifestyle so find something that if you can that you're passionate about that you can make an impact with and but the second one i think i would do is spend time understanding how do you access the knowledge, the skills, and the capability of the quote-unquote older generation? Those that have been through the, you know, have 20, 30, 40 years of experience in a particular way, uh, and that experience are life experiences as well as technology or business or commercial ones. And so how do you bring those in as consultants or advocates into what you're doing to apply that lens, I've been fortunate that I have built those experiences over my career to, you know, to 61 now. Um, if you're in your 20s and starting a company in, in climate change impact or sustainability, find ways to bring those folks in because little-known secret, they want to help. In fact, they'll often help you by if just being asked. It's an incredible. Um, you know, it's, it's an incredible impact on somebody, say, a younger person. I'd like to pick your brains. I'd like to learn on your experience. In most cases, they're happy to do it at no cost. Leverage it, right? If you're a young company doing this, don't forget to leverage the skills and expertise outside of your company who can enable you. Um, that would be the other piece of advice I'd give.
0: Yeah, Speaking of which, Steve, thanks for coming on and letting me pick your brain. Um, I love everything you're doing. If there's ever any way that I can support your business, uh, please don't hesitate to let me know. I'd really love to do so um i think what you're doing is incredible and then a little bit more on that um sometimes they write down uh, their whole life's work in a book that you can go pick up and read within two days exactly. and that's totally uh formed this really unique perspective that i have i'm always trying to take ideas from people i really respect but um like i said i appreciate you coming on the show today um and yeah i what you're doing is great so thanks so much man
1: you're welcome thank you ethan it was a, it was a pleasure and if uh you know i'm happy to happy to share more or help in any way I can. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
0: You're welcome, man. All right, everybody. See you soon. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate. Here at Climate Change Realty, we don't just donate 50% of our net commissions to fight climate change. We also donate a full 50% of our real estate referrals. <laughs>